That was the vice president of the post office. I didn't get the transfer. They knew it wasn't me doing my route. How did they know? Too many people got their mail. Close to 80%. Nobody from the post office has ever cracked the 50% barrier. It's like the three-minute mile. I tried my best. Exactly. guest today is Michael Mandel. He's the chief economic strategist at the Progressive Policy Institute, and he joins me today to talk about his research on e-commerce, its effect on the job and wage market, and all things related to the digital economy. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to be here. It seems to me that when we talk about technology and a lot of the changes in the economy, AI, robotics, what's on the horizon, there's a lot of, I think there's more concern than anticipation right now, it seems to me. And one of the concerns is the job market that, you know, the robots are going to take all the jobs. And I think if people are trying to look for evidence of that, one obvious place is just to go to their local mall where they see uh, stores closing down or they read headlines about these stores are struggling to uh, to stay afloat. And in the meantime, they, they'll see stories, Amazon, now would know a trillion-dollar company uh, that they're encroaching on all, on all these retailers. So I guess in short, you call that the retail apocalypse the demise of brick-and-mortar retailers and the elevation of online retailers or online retailer in the form of Amazon, and all those jobs are going away. What is your take on the retail apocalypse? Because it might not be the one people read about in, in the headlines and most news stories. Well, let's be really clear about this, Jim. There is no sign of the retail apocalypse in the data at all. And there's two things going on. First, if you look at brick-and-mortar jobs, full-time equivalent jobs, they're basically flat. They've been flat over the last two or three years. Mm, they're basically back to their level where they were in 2007. Um, there's no great sign of job loss, job erosion, people being laid off. Yes, yeah, some chains have closed, but if you ever look, there's a Wikipedia page about um, that's called defunct department stores, mm -hmm. and it goes on for pages. I mean, the U.S. economy has forever, you know, all the department stores of our youth are gone, right? right? Uh, you know, Corvettes in Brooklyn is is no more. You can just sort of go and sort of listen. This is this is this is the way that the world works. Some of the some of the chains that have sort of struggled the most, most like like Sears, have been going under for a decade, right. and and so. You know, you have growth in some areas, and then you have shrinkage in other areas, and it basically evens out. Um, you know, one place we've had expansion, for example, is drugstores. The big chains have expanded a lot. They sell a lot of food. Mm -hmm. They sell a lot of groceries. These are places now that people go f to pick up items where they used to go to the they, they used to go to a, the corner store before. So the, there's been a lot of substitution here. Um, so there's no sign of erosion in brick and mortar. On the other hand, there's been tremendous growth in e-commerce jobs, and e-commerce jobs are not just in Amazon headquarters, but they're in fulfillment centers, which often employ two, three, four, five thousand workers. And in many places, these are the biggest job projects that have been in the area for a while. And then there's the drivers that bring the stuff to us. Uh, and really what's gone on here is not a substitution of e-commerce for brick and mortar, but there's been a substitution of e-commerce for our hours. So it used to be that you know, might drive to the mall 
take you a couple of hours, sort of circle around and park. Uh, then you wander through the mall and you pull stuff off. You stand on line, then you drive back home again. You know, maybe it's three or four hours altogether. Now what we're doing is we're paying people effectively to do the picking and packing and driving for us. So there's been a mammoth shift of hours from the non-paid household sector to the paid market sector. In some sense, e-commerce has turned out to be a machine for generating jobs, not destroying jobs. And if you think about this in the historical context, this is exactly what happened in the, in the Industrial Revolution in the early part of the 20th century. The new factories of Henry Ford and GM were highly productive, and they were so productive that they could offer cars at a relatively low price that people could buy, at which point the demand accelerated and the number of jobs increased. There is no historical rule that productivity gains cost jobs. And what we're seeing right now is a living example of that. Right. So, so in a way, the job that's being replaced is my part-time job as a shopper, uh, someone who has to go to the mall. That is being replaced where I don't have to anymore. It's being replaced by someone with that actual job. Uh, you know, work. And again, our online retail, I, I'm saying online retailers, e-commerce, is it really just Amazon? Nope, it's My, not. It's not really just Amazon. I mean, so a lot of what Amazon's first of all, a lot of a lot of, a lot of Amazon's sales are actually not Amazon. They are third-party sellers selling through Amazon's system, which is not just the website, but in fact, their fulfillment centers. And this is really important because these fulfillment centers are not warehouses. They are extremely efficient machines for taking single items and shipping them out to consumers. And so this is a tremendous gain in, uh, in productivity that the rest of the retail sector is, is taking advantage of. And the next stage is going to be manuf new manufacturers taking advantage of this as well to ship directly to customers. Okay? And what Amazon has managed to do is transform, I mean, from my perspective, not retailing, but actually distribution. What you just said kind of suggests that there is maybe some sort of transitional phase. This is all still evolving. Could it be that we've seen sort of a, a you know, not a not a decline in sort of traditional retail jobs, but there's a flattening. But that is just sort of a momentary pause, and we will see big declines in those jobs uh, eventually. I think of I, I think of the story. Maybe I have all the facts wrong about. ATMs, the classic story about ATMs and bank tellers, where everyone predicted ATMs, there was going to be a bank teller apocalypse. It didn't happen, but you certainly saw, I guess, a uh, you didn't see the sort of uh, increases in jobs in that sector that you saw in the past, and that perhaps eventually those, those tellers will be uh, all put out of business. Eventually, will we see that retail apocalypse? Just not yet. Well, in that example, we haven't, we've seen, we see plenty of bank, bank branches. We haven't seen any great decline in banking. We see, we see banks opening up new branches all the time. All right. This is, I mean, what's happened is that it's, you have a transformation. Uh, the other thing that happens, which is really important, is that there's a rise in wages. And I suspect we were going to get to that, but it's. But you know, remember I mean, what? You mean wages between someone working at a fulfillment center? Well, or no. So, so, so behind the counter at. So, you know, so think think about think about what was going on in retailing for the last twenty years. Real wages were flat, mm -hmm. and. 
this was an important part of the rising wage gap in the economy because you'd have you'd have a, the industries where wages were rising and then you'd have retailing where the wages were flat was the was the was the job of last resort now what's happening is that e-commerce they're working with more technology they are they are better paid they have better benefits these are real jobs as opposed to part-time jobs with no benefits. Right. This is, you know, what Amazon. Like has, I heard these are terrible jobs, though. They, I mean, that I mean that I mean the bounce back is that these jobs, these fulfillment centers, they are just brutal, <laughs> difficult jobs. They are. And they, they are not quote unquote good jobs. They are not office jobs. They are mixed physical cognitive jobs. They require physical work. That's you know. Basically, these are, these are the sort of jobs that we were mourning before in the factories. Right. Okay. Where, what happened to all the jobs in the steel mills? Okay. So the, so the steel mill yeah. jobs were physical jobs. Yeah. What, what we were bemoaning before was, in fact, that the technological revolution was not creating jobs for people with a high school education. Right. Well, now it is, and people are complaining, well, they're not office jobs. Duh. Okay? They're not office jobs. Okay? You know, to work in an office job, you need to have a college education. And so this is what we have here is we are creating exactly the sort of jobs that we want at a reasonable wage. I think, you know, I had long struggles with people. My data was consistently showing that e-commerce jobs were paying 30% more than comparable brick-and-mortar jobs in the same area. People didn't believe that. Amazon helped solve this problem by saying, okay, we're going to pay everybody $15 an hour. You know, whereas companies like Walmart were paying $9 an hour. Right. And you look and you say, okay, $15 an hour is maybe not that much in Washington, D.C., but it's a good wage in Kentucky, okay, or Georgia, or other parts of the country that have, that have lower wages. And so that addresses geographical dispersion as well. So this is just a really, I think the point that you made about evolution, this is just a really interesting time because I actually think that this is, what we're going through here is a way station. We have the transformation, the upgrading of distribution systems, and that the next step will be an upgrading of manufacturing. And that's going to be really significant because what's going to happen is that we're going to see new manufacturing operations grow up that use these new distribution systems to deliver customized or, or locally made goods directly to people, and we're going to have a renaissance uh, in, uh, in manufacturing. Yeah, well, just, just dig in that for another you know, minute or so. What, just be a little bit more specific. What kinds of, what kinds of manufacturing? I mean, what does that really – could you just give an example of what that might look like? So uh, you can imagine, for example, a f furniture factory that rather than shipping in furniture from, from China or even from North Carolina, what happens is that an automated factory – makes furniture custom-made for your shape and size. Right. So it's much more comfortable at the same price. Why like an athletic fit couch. An athletic <laughs> why wouldn't, exactly, exactly. You know, why should all, why should all couches feel the same? Why right. shouldn't you be able to get, and you can't do that now because the production equipment is, is not flexible enough. When we move to robots and 3D printing, 
all of a sudden the production equipment becomes much more flexible, these factories will require less people than the comparable factories now, but more workers than shipping it in from China. Right. And so it's going to be very much the same sort of situation where I try not to say that jobs will return because they're not going to be the same sort of jobs and not going to be the same, same sort of products. They're going to be goods that we wish we had now and cannot afford to make. And I could go down a list in, in food, in clothing, uh, in terms of business products, business, business machinery that's exactly suited for a particular situation. And it's very much analogous to the shift from the point-to-point -point telephone system to the internet. The point-to-point -point telephone system worked, but it was very inflexible. You need to have wires everywhere, going from here to there. Now what happens is we break everything down to bits and bytes, ship it around, it gets reassembled at the other end, much more flexible, there's many more things that you can do. And uh, that's the sort of, what, this is what we call um, the Internet of Goods. Right. And um, it has a very different flavor to it than um, the current uh, system does. Uh, do you think, are we seeing well, what's happening with these jobs and these are higher paying jobs, uh, these fulfillment center jobs? Do, do you think we're already seeing that like sort of in the aggregate wage data for, you know, lower skill workers? I'd love to say yes, but I don't quite see it yet. I think it may be masked a little bit by changes in um, the minimum wage. I would expect to start seeing it soon. The numbers have grown enough that it should start making a difference. Uh, I would expect to see this start helping narrow inequality. But like I said, the bigger impact is going to be when it spreads to manufacturing, which after all is still a really important industry in this country. Right. I mean, you're saying there's always sort of been this disruption where, you know, department stores have come and gone and we kind of forget about the department stores of our youth. But certainly, it seems like it's sort of accelerated. I don't know. There's no evidence that it's right. accelerated. There's right. no evidence in the data. Right. Okay. There's still... Well, they meant the jobs may be moving from still snow, the Circuit still, City to this, CVS. But. This, this, and Best Buy is doing fine. And you go into the malls, and you in the good malls, you still see stores opening up, and the bad malls are closing down. And so... What we're seeing, you know, is... But you can also find a Wikipedia page called, like, Dead Malls page. And it does seem like that... And I, and I certainly have read stories that, that we, have too, we have too much retail space in this country. Oh, I, can, that, yeah, I, consider, I consider that to sort of be a simple overbuilding problem. Right. Okay, I'm that's not, not... That's not a... That's not an automation technology. I'm not... I'm not... I'm not, I'm not terribly... You know, what's interesting, what's going on, of course, is that companies like Amazon want to open up physical stores. They want to open up physical stores, though, that are cashless. Right. And that sort of becomes a, the – you mentioned financial uh, uh, sector. That becomes another interesting flashpoint here, which is that the transformation sort of moves into how do we actually streamline the financial system so that less of the value added is captured there and more of it is actually captured in the real economy. And that's where we may be heading to. That may be a very significant change that we're heading to as well. Um, all these things are, are going on at the same time. Is that What's really interesting is that our transformation up to now has been in what I call the digital sector, which includes any industry that is basically bits and bytes. So it's communication and entertainment and professional services and finance. Right. That's about 20% of the economy. It's not that much.
The other 80% has been really resistant. And partly the reason why we feel like we've been struggling across this period is because 80% of the economy has not really digitized. And, and therefore, you're not probably, and you're not going to see the productivity growth you would like to not, see. And, that, and, and that's why this shift into retail for me is incredibly significant for two reasons. One is we're starting to digitize physical industries. And second is, oh my God, we're finally starting to create good paying jobs for workers without college education. Mm -hmm. That is, that to me is the most significant aspect of this because how can you say that you have widespread prosperity? Until you sort of until you start seeing that. What about other sort of physical world sectors? Ah, you know, a big chunk of the economy is education and healthcare. Education and healthcare really important. Well, we'll start with mining. Okay, uh, you know, mining and the and the and the you know shale oil and gas revolution was really technologically driven. The ability to sort of do imaging and then horizontal drilling, uh, very much technology driven, very much data driven, very important. But you know. People sort of sometimes have mixed feelings about that. Um, then when we, when we move into healthcare, you look and you sort of say, what would digitization look like? Well, we had the first step into this with electronic health records. But the electronic health records still don't have the data in it that we need that we need to actually digitize the healthcare system. We don't have the clinical data. So how do you start connecting up your clinical systems to your claim systems. And you start to realize that, that there's institutional barriers there that gradually need to be eaten away, and it's a process. And I've heard about digital health records, certainly. Forever. For, for, forever. Forever. It's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I, I, I sort of tempted to think that this is something that's just not going to happen in my lifetime. So, and, 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 and how does that, and, but that, you expect it to happen, and that will boost productivity. So, so you think about health, the healthcare, healthcare sector. And please stop me when you need me to stop, because I could sort of talk for the rest of the, the 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 time on healthcare. Healthcare is ugly because, in fact, the number of healthcare workers has been increasing faster than the size of the population. In any real sense of the word, productivity has been falling in healthcare, falling, and it's been eating up large, absorbing large numbers of workers from the rest of the economy, raising costs. And in some sense, it is, the way that I think about healthcare being a drag is not simply monetarily, but it's absorbing all this skilled labor. And we have to figure out how to treat people without quite so much skilled labor, whether that's the use of robots, mm -hmm. whether that's the use of automation, um, there's a lot of different possibilities, whether it's the use of more drugs rather than less. Uh, I'd like to turn this whole process, you know, this whole process of thinking about the healthcare system on its head. How do you engage in disruptive innovation, which, which includes better care with less workers? Do you think this country is still as willing to accept disruptive innovation. And by that, I mean innovation that will cause some companies to rise, others to fall. Uh, people will have to switch jobs. Maybe they have to move somewhere else. Are we still as willing 
to to have that sort of economy because you know as as we're taping as we're as we're taping the podcast there's there's this battle between President Trump and GM and you know GM wants to you know, you know close these plants in Ohio and Michigan the president's pushing against it and I I, I just wonder if, if generally we're accepting or if the political class is accepting of that sort of disruptive innovation that will be necessary. We had 20 years where things didn't work well. Okay, we had 20 years where disruption in manufacturing and retail, and what I mean by retail is like the big box stores, mm-hmm. and what I mean by manufacturing is globalization, led to outcomes that, on the face of it, were not good for workers. I mean, in manufacturing, number of jobs really fell. In retailing, the jobs didn't fall, but the wages didn't rise. And so it did not look like productivity gains were being passed on. And so we have a 20-year history of skepticism to overcome. So, yeah. Meaning the 2000s. Well, I would go back even a little bit further. Okay. Um, And I know that goes back into the Clinton years. But, you know, I think we sort of have to kind of acknowledge at this point that the tech boom of the 90s was great. And then it was followed by something that was not so great. But, But I want to sort of look at the entire period, because I don't want to get political about this. Um, the fact is, is that manufacturing, multi-factor productivity manufacturing has been, most industries has been pretty much flat since the early 90s. All right. We have not... And multi-factor productivity, that means sort of taking in, it, take, innovation, take, technological progress. That, that's, that taking into account innovation, technological progress, capital investment, everything else. Right. And so, you know, I think that, and we did not have a full in the price of manufactured goods in the, that were made in this country. They rose. And so from my perspective, I, I understand the skepticism. I understand the skepticism. I understand the geographic skepticism in terms of certain areas of the country being left behind. And that just means we who are optimists have to work harder to sort of convince people with real facts and figures and stories that this is benefiting them, that we're into a new era at this point. As the expression goes, the proof is in the pudding. You co-authored a paper, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago with uh, one of my AI colleagues, Brett Swanson, called The Coming Coming Productivity yes. Boom. I've uh, been sort of in a productivity lull for uh, about a decade. And, and some people would say, actually, for many decades, yeah. if you sort of, other than sort of that splurge in the late 90s, early 2000s, so just quickly make make your case because it seems like we've been waiting for a productivity boom. If you read the news headlines about you know what's happening in Silicon Valley, you kind of would expect there 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 would be one, and that would be that would be great. It would drive higher economic growth, higher living standards, all that. When are we going to see that, and why are we, and why haven't we seen it yet? Given well, we've we we we've, we've started to see it in retailing, and it doesn't show up in the numbers because we're not counting it. We're not counting hours right. Remember, we sort of talked about how the re, how the shift to e-commerce is. Sucking away your and mine hours and moving into the into the paid hour. We don't count as part of productivity household hours. Right. What that means is that the, our fallen household hours producing the consumption of goods is not being counted. And so there's actually a fairly dramatic undercount just coming from e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these areas, as we have the digitization, we may discover that that, you know, so one of the areas that I'm sort of looking at at this point for, is, is food processing. Productivity in food processing has been extremely weak, has been negative. Okay. Part of that is because we're improving health and safety. All right. 
as we digitize food processing, the ability to sort of ensure health and safety of the food supply will increase, but we won't actually be measuring that correctly. Right. So, you know, right now we've got measuring problems in, in the in the digital sector, not so much in the physical sector, but as the physical sector digitizes, the measurement problems will increase. And, you know, what I basically say is, look at what people are doing. If you see people changing their behavior, that means they're responding to innovation and productivity gains. I see people changing their behavior in the way that they shop, and this is because what Amazon and other e-commerce uh, companies have done is basically they, they offer something that is superior on every dimension to shopping in a store because they, once they figured out that they can, if they delivered it quickly and offer free returns, right. why, wouldn't you, why wouldn't you shop at home? Right? I mean, you could always go down to the mall and visit if you want to look at stuff, but the actual shopping is at home because you can order five pairs of shoes. They come. Well, there are people who enjoy the shopping experience. And, but that, and that is fine. And that becomes entertainment rather than right. actually shopping. I mean, one problem that I, you know, I've had different, you know, different uh, folks in here talking about productivity. Where's the productivity boom? When's it going to show up? How much... It has shown up in some places. You have some companies which seem to be able to look at these new technologies and use them very, very well. Uh, a lot of companies, either they can't use them or they haven't tried to use them yet. Is it How much of this is just it takes time for companies to build up the expertise, to learn how to use these technologies better and make and make their companies more productive? Is that Do you think that's an issue or is that as much as mis, mismeasurement? I, I think that it just turns out to be very difficult to apply information technology to the physical sector. And the way that I always describe this is I think about Iron Man, you know, in the Marvel movies beautiful graphics on screen, very hard to do, you know, amazing. Right? You know, we laud the people that do this, but it requires an infinitesimal amount of the processing power that would be required to sort of generate Iron Man armor in reality. Okay? <laughs> but it's important to realize that right. because, 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 you know, this, this leap into the physical world is a lot more data, it's a lot more complicated. We actually have to get down to being able to work directly with the production process. Um, it's it's happening now, and where we also need to sort of see the development of the complementary technologies. And I think the main complementary technology that is now coming online is in fact digital distribution. So I view e-commerce as an enabling technology for the rest of the Internet of Goods, is the ability to actually say, okay, I have a box here. I can move this box from point A to point B really cheaply. I don't have to, I don't have to, it's not expensive anymore. It's really cheap to sort it. And all of a sudden when you say that, I can do things in the real world that I couldn't do before. Do you think the gains will be significant enough to sort of, change the growth trajectory of the American economy, which, you know, you have, whether it's at the Fed, CBO on Wall Street, they say that, you know, over the long term, this is an economy that will grow 2%, maybe a bit less. Is there is there enough in these technologies to change yeah. that into a 2.5% economy or 3% economy? I ask the question a different way. The question that I ask is, there are things that are too expensive for us to do now. Will they become less expensive in real terms and enable us to, to do things? And that includes infrastructure. 
It includes health care. It includes all the things in the, you know, in the back of our minds right. that we sort of say, oh, what will we do if we only had more resources? Mm-hmm. Well, you go back and you think about the invention of the car and the mass marketing of the car. It meant that you could, all of a sudden, you could have houses that were two hours out in the country and still work in the city. You couldn't do that before. Right. There are things that you could not do. And what I asked people to do, as I said, make me up a list of things that you would love to be able to do. And then I will tell you that are too expensive right now. And I will tell you what prosperity will mean 20 or 30 years from now. It might mean the ability to sort of feed people locally. Mm-hmm. It might mean the ability to sort of deal more easily with climate change, whether or not that means changing where we live or mitigation efforts that are too expensive right now. And you can sort of go down the list. I mean, I'll give you a really, really simple one, okay, that I like, which is pedestrian bridges. There's all these places that would be wonderful to have pedestrian bridges because... That is a, that's actually a real thing with me. I, I feel like there should be more pedestrian bridges exactly, in the country. Exactly. And, but it turns out that pedestrian bridges are super expensive to build. And so you can imagine the application of digitization to construction enabling us to build more pedestrian bridges. Now, when I look at the rapid growth of e-commerce, I say, okay, here's something that... Well, that should show up in the data at some point. We should... You should it's, right? So, it's, so, it's, so... All that's so happening, the world, should be a 1.8% the, the, economy. So, so, the, so when people ask me, okay, and I've written on both sides of this. I've written that, that the productivity growth is both undermeasured and overmeasured. And if we ever wanted to have a podcast purely on productivity measurement on both sides, we, I could conduct both sides <laughs> of the debate myself. And in the end, what I decided is that I look to see how people are feeling. Right. I look, and I look to see how people are feeling. If they're feeling crummy, you know, then I'm not going to say that that productivity is being undermeasured significantly. They're feeling, they've been feeling crummy for the last 20 years. Now the question is right now, if I go back to an area that an e-commerce fulfillment center has been set up and people have jobs, how do they feel about this? How do they feel about these jobs? How do they feel about what they're getting? Okay. If the price of food starts to fall rather than rise, you know, will that make people feel better? And so I'm, I'm much more, I'm much more at the end of the day, and I, you know, I had said beforehand that I wasn't going to get into politics, but I will. Okay, but I'll get in there indirectly. That I look to see how people are feeling about their lives, because to me, that's that's that is what that is what that is what we care about, and. Up to now, they've been feeling things are too expensive. We had, don't, there's a lot of things we wish we had that we, that we don't have. We don't feel like we've got a better living standard mm-hmm. than our, you know, our parents did. And, and you sort of can understand this. The innovation has been restricted to a very small range. And, and just give me one minute here. We've, we, what we in the U.S. do is we put our R&D into two areas. Two-thirds of our, one-third of our R&D goes into information technology. Mm-hmm. And one-third goes into biosciences. And what's happened to life expectancies in this country for middle-aged people? Not great. Not great. And so if you had to say where the biggest failure has been, where the biggest disconnect is, what we've had is not actually in the information technology sphere, which has actually impacted precisely the things that it should have impacted, which is the 
digital industries. But in the, you know, we did not, in, there's two, actually it's two failures. One is ours and one is somebody else's. We've invested in a lot of biosciences, producing incredible gains on the scientific side that has not yet really translated into the big gains on the output side that we expected. The other thing is those other countries, the Japan and Europe, that were investing in the material sciences, they haven't held up their end. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But the fact is, is that I would have expected, you know, both of those countries have much deeper manufacturing bases than the U.S. does. And they still may produce the sort of innovations that we need. But it's been a really slow process. Innovation's a, not just a one country thing. It's, it's an innovation. You have to sort of look at how they, it divides up globally. We have been the acknowledged leader in biosciences. We pour a trillion dollars over the last decade into, into R&D and biosciences. And where's the beef? Uh, what, should, what should we be doing on the policy side? And is either party... <laughs> have it right or that they both have it wrong right now if you want a sort of a pro-innovation policy? Well, I think that uh, the main thing that I would do at this point is focusing on accelerating digital manufacturing. Okay. I'm not going to get overly excited about, about big pictures. I think we've kind of reached a stage here where the technologies are starting to appear. We have to encourage entrepreneurship in digital manufacturing. That means exposing people to the new technologies, giving them help in however way is satisfactory to the political system, okay, whether it's... Is there, I mean, is there much to be done politically? Or is the, the you know, the, it's, just, it's just a private sector thing? Well, well what, I, what, what I think... What I th it has to, these technologies... What I, think, to... what, I think, what I think is that it's important that if you want to jumpstart it, right. okay? Sure. Okay, there's places that government action can actually have some leverage. And the key is to sort of move the tools out there faster, give people more exposure, almost education and training, and you know, set up centers where people can play with the latest robotics or the latest you know, 3D printing technologies, which are amazing, and get some ideas for products, and then go out into the market and sort of raise the money for it, sort of with or without some government assistance. But you go back and you look and you say, how did the bicycle shops of the early 20th century morph into the factories. All right, what do we what do we need to do to sort of have that kind of happen happen again? So yeah, I think there's a role for government. Um I wouldn't be I wouldn't be heavy handed about it. I also think there's a very large role for the for the private sector. Now if we go and we sort of talk about healthcare, I think once again that's something we could sort of talk about, you know, all all day and all night. But I do think in that case what's gonna break the logjam is that eventually there are, there are things that will come out of the investments in biotechnology that will knock people's socks off enough to move the needle. Okay, I, th I feel that we're really close to that. As a sort of wrapping up here, so when if we were to look back on this period from a generate from twenty five years from now, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping I am I am they, hoping <laughs> Jim to look back on this period for twenty five years from now. That's that's the in best any, that I can say. Oh, I feel the same way in any fashion at all. The mere the mere looking, uh, no matter what would, would be fine. But w will they say that we were uh, we were overly pessimistic? That here here's what they didn't see coming. Here's what they possibly couldn't have seen coming. Well, to them it seemed like 
nothing but stagnation as far as the eye can see. Uh, but they, you know, but little did they know. I have. I'm going to be really clear here. I have been a proponent forever of of growth and volatility. Okay, that you know that that's that's creative destruction. Well, you know, more than creative destruction at the micro level, but sort of volatility on the macro level too. So it's real easy for me to imagine sort of that that there's tremendous growth coming in areas that we didn't expect. Because frankly, if I go back to 2006 and I sort of, if I go back for the last 10 years and say, what was the single biggest technological innovation in terms of economic impact? One was the smartphone, one was fracking, and neither one was forecast in 2006. Right. Okay. Nobody wrote about either of those, actually with the exception of Brett, as he points out. And so right now, if I had to sort of say, I would say that we, we, are, we are close to a, a tidal wave of change in, um, in the biosciences, okay, and a tidal wave of change in bringing manufacturing back to this country that people do not expect, and that it may be accompanied by a lot of volatility, maybe not generated in the U.S., maybe generated globally. And so you sort of sit there and you sort of think, what should we as an economy be doing? Is it more important to stimulate the growth or is it more important to sort of protect against the volatility? And this is one of those things that lays right down along the political fault lines. Very difficult for people to understand, very difficult to figure out um, because we end up looking backwards rather than forwards. Well, I think, I think both parties might be split right now between people who uh, fear the volatility and people who say, bring it on. That's the only way we move forward as a, as a country and as an economy, as a people. Uh, I think we are in for a, you asked me to look back in 25 years, and you asked me to look back politically, I go, wow. Okay, so hard to tell. Hang on. Be right. Uh, Michael Mandel, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. City sky comes down like rain through all the